want to thank Philip for inviting me uh, to come this morning. Uh, this is a strange Sunday. I was booked to go somewhere else, and then I cancelled that. And then another friend asked me to preach uh, in a Church of Scotland church, and he, he gave me a very, very difficult catechism question. Uh, he said he was having a week off. Would I do it? And I thought, right. Uh, but I said, no, I can't do that, because I was going to the first one. So then... Uh, Everything fell apart uh, after that, and I ends up up on the pulpit uh, this morning. But uh, maybe you you got the children's address, uh, and that was just the first part of of three, in a sense, explaining the shorter catechism. Do you mind? Uh, do you remember ever watching the film The Witness? Uh, remember what it was about? Do you remember that great scene where they all met? Was it on a Saturday morning? Uh, all the neighbors gathered in Pennsylvania, Dutch country, and they built this huge timber barn, and they did it all in a day. And of course, there was the blue skies, uh, the big scene, and uh, the, the great orchestral music uh, that was setting the scene for it all. It's got absolutely nothing to do with what I'm going to say, except there was a minister not very far from where that was filmed, and he was preaching on the Ten Commandments, and he came up with three things that he felt the Ten Commandments uh, were about. And uh, if you troll around the internet, you'll see that several people have used his three, because he said uh, that the Ten Commandments were, first of all, a mirror, and we explained that a wee bit. The second thing, he said they were a map, and we haven't looked at that yet. And he said there were a muzzle. And I thought those were three very interesting ways of looking at the commandments. They were a mirror. They show us our sin. They're a map because when we are believers, they show us how to live, don't they? Alistair Begg, when he wrote his book on the, the Ten Commandments, he called it the pathway of freedom. And that was... That was a good title, wasn't it? Because when we live according to them, they don't save us. But when we live according to them, they keep us on a, the pathway of freedom. And then finally, they're a muzzle. And uh, you know that if you have a biting dog, you muzzle it. Uh, I'm sure this minister, when he was thinking of it, wasn't thinking of a congregation all sitting in front of him, all muzzled in mass on their faces. But you know, I suppose the better example is that of a dog and maybe a dog warden and a muzzle on the end of the pole and, and reaching it out to catch the dog and to stop it biting. They're a muzzle on us as far as sin is concerned and on society as far as sin is concerned. So we need to remember they, they have a threefold use. Now, Calvin and others uh, looked at it somewhat differently, but that threefold use, I think, is very, very helpful. The other thing that we need to remember about the Ten Commandments is something not just about the nature of God's law, but the scope, if you like, of God's law. You see, God's law is not just about outward action, but it is about outward and inward action as well. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught the sixth commandment, 
And he said it is not just about killing, but it's also about hate. And Tim Keller, the New York minister, when he wrote his little catechism, he summarized the sixth commandment is that we are not to hurt or hate anyone. First time I looked at that, I thought, that's a bit woke. He's dumbing it down a bit there, isn't he? But not really, because if you take that to the right level, we don't hurt anyone, never do anything to hurt our neighbor, and we never do anything to hate them. It's about a, a maximum application rather than a minimum. Uh, you know, the fifth commandment is a good example of that. It's not enough just to say, well, I visit my parents once a week or I call them on a Sunday night and that's sort of it if they need more. Again, Jesus talking about this. Well, he, he addressed himself maybe to what we might call the hotshot preacher. And we might say, just because you're a famous preacher and you're on here and there and do all this sort of stuff, that's not what you're to offer as far as service to your parents are concerned. And there's the positive and the negative elements of the Ten Commandments. We're not to kill our neighbor, but we're to do good to our neighbor as well. And there is the part uh, and the whole. You know, uh, the story's told of a, a discussion with a Jewish rabbi, and he says it's easy to keep the Ten Commandments. I've always kept the Ten Commandments. He was really behaving like the proverbial Pharisee. He says, the only one that maybe gives me problem at the end of the day is this idea of coveting. You know, I like that person's new Cadillac or their new Lamborghini or whatever else. I wish it was mine. I like his wife. My wife's not stylish anymore as, as that young woman is or whatever way you want to, to look at it. Always coveting. Always coveting. He felt that was a struggle in his heart. He felt he had kept all the commandments. And even you got to that point, what does James say? Whoever keeps the whole law but falls in one part of it has become guilty of it all. Even you're mad enough to think that in your heart you've kept the whole lot. Well, even if you fall in one part of it, you've fallen in it all. I like that quote about the former American President Jimmy Carter, uh, one uh, reporter once stuck the microphone in his face and said, Mr. Carter, Mr. President, have you ever committed adultery? And Carter squared up to him and he says, only in my heart, only in my heart. You see, where they stretch, they stretch right into our very inward being, into our hearts. In the time that we have left this morning, I want to turn with you to the first of the Ten Commandments. The Israelites had just come out of Egypt, hadn't they? And Egypt was marked out by one thing in particular, and that was polytheism. Now, we can break that word down. We know poly means many, and theism means gods. And that's exactly what Egypt had. It had many gods. They worshipped many 
gods, were tempted to say there were more gods in Egypt than they had had hot dinners. There were the gods of the fields and the rivers, the, the sun and the storm. There was the gods of love and war, the gods that were male and gods that were female, gods that were in the form of men, gods that were in the form of beasts. You think about it, and they had all of those things. And God spoke these words. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the worship of all of these things. And he started right at the very beginning with what they had seen and probably what they had been doing. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. Cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on and do not defile yourself with the idols of Egypt. I'd misplaced a book over the last few weeks and I just found it this morning where it wasn't meant to be. And uh, it's a book on the Ten Commandments and the title of the book is very apt. It's called Written in Stone. Now, I don't think it's quite a while since I've been in the vestibule of the church. Thankfully, you don't have plaques all over the church, but they're out in the vestibule. And if I remember rightly, there's a plaque there to the Reverend Henry Henry. I always thought as a child, they must have been very short of names in that family because they just used his surname for his first name. I suppose that was handy enough. People couldn't call him by his surname. They are always calling him by his first name. But I think from memory, he's the person that gave the manse and the manse uh, farm very generous indeed of him. But you know, that plaque is written in stone. You're not going to change it, and you're not going to think, well, there's a lot of ministers that followed after him, and, you know, if we get a chisel, we could maybe change it. The only way you can really change it to someone else uh, is, well, call somebody else Henry Henry and maybe obscure the date. But you get the point. That memorial stone is permanent as long as it's there. It's written in stone. And the Ten Commandments were the same. They were written in stone. They weren't ten suggestions. They weren't ten things that would be all right for the children of Israel who had just come out of Egypt, but they were written in stone because of their permanence. But then you ask yourself the question, why is God speaking about all our gods? Surely there's something wrong there. But he's not speaking about all our gods in that they're real and that they exist, but rather to say that people are foolish to run after them. When I was growing up, uh, there was a bank manager in Balamina, or assistant bank manager in Balamina, and I only found this out relatively recently. Apparently, he has a great collection of Irish banknotes. Over his career and before it, if there was a new banknote come out by any of the banks that were allowed to print banknotes, he got, he got one of them and he collected them. And, and apparently he has a phenomenal collection. And all our people who worked in all our banks, they would have passed on something that came in and thought that, that uh, Leslie Ballantyne was collecting. And they handed it over to him. I'm sure they're all genuine, but you know, someone who works in a bank usually can tell you 
if, if they handle a note, that it's not genuine, that it's counterfeit, and it's worthless. As we say, it's not worth the paper it was printed on. It is of no value, really, whatsoever. And that's the sense in which the Scripture here is talking about these things. I am the, uh, the, the God who has brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of bondage, out of this polytheistic culture. You shall have no other gods before me. God is speaking here about the counterfeit God. But secondly, he's speaking about the gods who uh, enslave, because we have a built-in predisposition to worship. Worship isn't something that we have to learn. You know, it's not like a program that has to be entered into the computer. It comes with that program already installed. It's already part of the hardware, if you like, and the same with us. We have that predisposition to worship. And we have to be very careful that we are not worshiping the false gods. God commands us, yes, to reject those false gods. You know, and they are insidious. I was thinking about this recently. Uh, after I'd been minister in a congregation, I heard a very sad story about two people in the congregation, two people that I knew really well, and a family that I knew really well. Uh, it was just after, I think it was maybe actually before Christmas, but the, uh, that part of the world, they didn't, have, uh, they didn't have peat. They had turf, and they burnt turf in their stoves and in their cookers. And the family had got together because I think it was a Stanley cooker they had uh, in the living room of a, of a new bungalow or a new bungalow that was pretty airtight. And they had got together and they had bought them uh, the oil tank and the kit to convert the cooker to burn an oil. And of course, it was all done. And both had had the coal. And the sad story was that one was found dead beside the heap and the other had made it to the back door. Whoever had installed it hadn't put in a proper air supply and it was carbon monoxide. And you see, the false, the false oxygen, if we can put it that way, because it wasn't really, had bound to the red blood cells, the hemoglobin or whatever, and that had killed the both of them. You see, false worship, the false thing, finds a place to go because we're a great receptacle for it. We have, as someone said, that God-shaped void, that God-shaped void within us. When God commands us to reject false gods, he is commanding us to choose him as the true God. Does John Calvin say? Well, he says the first commandment requires us to contemplate, to fear, to worship his majesty, to participate in his blessings, to speak, to seek rather his help at all times, to receive and by praises to celebrate the greatness of his works, and the only goal of all our life 
and all our activity. It tells us we are to worship and it tells us who we are to worship. We are to worship the true and the living God. Is that what we see when we turn to Scripture? You know, we see some sad, uh, sad examples of people that we would have thought would never have done this, turning away from God and worshiping false gods. One of the, the greatest examples of this, I think, is, is Solomon. We could describe it as a right royal disobedience. We're surprised that Solomon would turn to false gods. Uh, one, he was one of the greatest kings of the ancient world. He had all the power and the wealth. He had empire and he had palaces. And when God asked him what gift he would like, remember what Solomon asked for? It couldn't be better, could it? He asked for wisdom. Uh, he was a man of prayer. He he was someone that was a role model, you might have said. But sadly, he failed on the first commandment. He didn't keep the first commandment. We are told that Solomon failed to keep God's law, that he went after false gods. He went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians. And he went after Melchon, the abomination of the Ammonites. And what about Solomon in his own life? Well, yes, he ended up building God's temple and using gold and all sorts of fine things. But he built a palace that was even more spectacular than, than the temple. When it came to the military, the, the, the children of Israel at that time were forbidden from having a standing army. In other words, they were to rely on God, and if there was an invasion, God would organize them and he would see off the invasion. But Solomon, no, he had to have his own cavalry, and he, he wanted to be the, the great defender of his people rather than God being the defender of his people. Solomon was under glamour. We read that Solomon had 700 wives. And he had 300 concubines, a thousand women. Now, I don't have to draw pictures, but there was no way he was using them all as wives and concubines. Surely it was just the glamour of it all. Everywhere he went, there was the, well, it wasn't even the arm jewelry as they say nowadays, but just the beauty of all these women crowding around him. But God punished Solomon for, uh, for his tearing after our gods. He tore his kingdom apart. And we have that calamity with Solomon. What about us? Because we can talk about Israel. We can talk about them coming out of Egypt. We can talk about the great king Solomon, but surely we have to ground all of this, and we have to ground it in our own lives. How can we identify our private adulteries, idolatries rather? How can we identify our private idolatries? Well, first of all, there's 
there is the love test. What do you love? Or to put it another way, what do you desire? Is it your career? Is it ambition? You know, I have a little book called Rescuing Ambition, but sometimes there are people who have no ambition for anything. They just want to sit around and, and not get up and get on with it. But is, is ambition everything for you? What about wealth? Is that, is that what really floats your boat? What about fitness and health? Is, is it somewhere there? Is it even a ministry within the church? You know, over the years I've met the odd younger minister starting and it seems to be all about them. And usually the rough edges get knocked off and there's a few battles and they realize, no, it's not all about them. It's all about trusting God and putting him first. What about the love test? do you love? Do you love anything more than God? What about the, the trust test? What do you turn to at, at times of trouble? Uh, as Martin Lloyd-Jones said, whenever your heart, whatever your heart clings to, whatever it relies upon, that is properly your God. Or the old Puritan Thomas Watson said, to trust in anything more than God is to make it a god, oh yes, a counterfeit, a false god, the carbon monoxide of gods. To trust in anything more than God is to make it a god. Matthew Henry said, pride makes a god of self, covetousness makes a god of money, sensuality makes a god of the flesh. Whatever is esteemed or, esteemed or loved or feared or served, delighted in, or depended on more than God, that we do, in effect, make a God of. What are you making a God of? Is it the true and the living God? Is there something else getting in the way? COVID has been strange for many reasons, but one of the things that strikes me about it is there seems to be almost an interminable line of professors Turn the TV on, and there's another new professor of some sort of immunology or virology or sociology or whatever, and they all appear. And you wonder, where have they all been, and why are there so many of them? And obviously, they do whatever they need to do. But I suppose one of the things that people who end up a professor in any subject do is research. They research either looking down a microphone or a microscope rather or talking to people with a microphone and, and uh, getting opinions and trying to bring them all together and trying to make some reason out of them. But there's a man by the name of Robert Bellock and whether he was studying for his PhD and doing research or he's a professor, I don't know. But he decided a good few years ago to research into the American population and to see what they worship. And uh, he had spent copious times talking to people, looking at magazines, TV programs, whatever, wherever he thought he could find information. And he ended up meeting a lady by the name of Sheila Carson. And he talked to her. 
And he, uh, when he was talking to her, the penny dropped. Because she said to him, you know, I'm not a religious person. I don't go to church. The last time I probably was in church, it would have been a funeral or uh, maybe a baptism, something like that, or a wedding uh, of a close friend or, or a colleague. But I don't regularly go to church. But I, but I, I have a spirituality. And I, I, I've worked out who God is for me. And the penny dropped with the researcher because his comment was in the United States, it seems as if there are 220 million gods that people make up their own God and they have the God that suits them. And that was the situation in Egypt, the land that the children of Israel had come out of and God had said to them that they were not to be worshipping the many gods but only the one true and living God. I'm not a great poetry buff. I don't think my English literature marks would be something I would want to display. But you may have, like me in passing, have heard of the poet, poet Elizabeth Barrett Browning, and she penned these words, how weak the gods of this world are, and weaker still, yet their worship made me weaker still, the worship of the false gods will make you. We're going to sing our final hymn.